Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. We weren't able to pass on wealth. We weren't able to pass on a farm. And so to look at it and say, now your field is level? No, Bernard Bates' family, were, they were denied the opportunity to continue to farm. That didn't level the field. In this episode, we examine the disenfranchisement of Black farmers that has robbed our communities of generational wealth, access to equitable resources and education, and significantly contributed to Black health disparities. And we highlight the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund, an organization that has saved millions of dollars worth of Black-owned farmland. Welcome back, Distrust and Disparities listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. We also want to say happy Juneteenth. We want to begin by like giving some history of Juneteenth, just a brief history. The word Juneteenth comes from the combination of June and 19th, and it is an annual commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Juneteenth, this holiday is observed on June 19th, 1865, which was more than two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation in January 1st, 1863, when Texas finally received word that slavery had ended. So slavery had been abolished, but people were still enslaved in Texas. And on June 17th, 2021, two years ago, Juneteenth became a federal holiday. And barbecues and cookouts and, you know, hanging out with your family is a great way to celebrate Juneteenth. I also hope that everyone takes time to relax as well on this holiday. And I just want to point out that Juneteenth, like most other American holidays, is becoming very commercialized. And I would say it's become another performative display of equality and false inclusion. Yes, it has, because you'll have the nonsense of brands and stores selling, you know, Cheaply made items going, you know, Juneteenth and Black Lives Matter and a little Black Fist. But like in reality, maybe whoever is funding that store or wherever those funds are coming from are from people who actively work against Black Mm -hmm. people, marginalized people. They actively support legislation that harms us that harms so many other people. It's very comparable to the pride bull that Uh is currently happening with target this year. And just the fact that it's all lip service. Cause at the end of the day, you'll have bigoted, racist, awful people go, Oh no, 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 no. What is wrong with this? And instead of standing firm and actually saying out loud, We are doing this not just for the coins, but because Uh we believe that it is right and that these people, queer people, trans people, black people deserve better. We're going to be like, oh, let's let's move stuff to the back of the store or let's just slap some, you know, black pride colors on a napkin and go happy Juneteenth, people. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. It's just they want our dollars, but in actuality, what are they doing to support us, to stand up for our rights and things like that? And, you know, also just like the inclusion of Black brands and different things. What is the percentage of Black brands in these stores? And, you know, Mm -hmm. where are these funds going to? A lot of these big major corporations are supporting those in Congress and other seats 
that are advocating for legislation that works against us. So look into those things and, you know, actively look at where you're spending your money at and things like that. And, you know, Juneteenth is the time to remind people about the history and continuing experience of racism and oppression that has unfortunately defined much of the African-American experience. We just want to remind you that according to historian Mitch Kajun, celebrations of the end of slavery should have three goals to celebrate, to educate, and to agitate. And with this episode, we will definitely educate and we hope we agitate as well. It's really important to remember our history, which is not that long ago. And we have to pay attention to what's going on because history is sadly repeating itself. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. Let's move on to our main segment, our main discussion. I have been planning this episode in my head for a long time, but honestly, there's so much research and so much information. I was struggling to process how to present this information and put it together. I'm so glad I was able to find the information that I was looking for. And let's jump into this week's episode because we have a lot to unpack. After slavery and under conditions of savage oppression, Black families emerged in the early 1900s with almost 20 million acres of farmland. This was the largest amount of property they would ever own within the United States. And that is according to historian Manning Marbell. And so at this time, Black farmers made up 14% of the producers in the United States. As of 2017, that number dropped to just 1.4%, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA most recent agricultural census. That boils down to Black farmers specifically, they lost approximately 90% of their property, which is roughly about 16 million acres of land, which in today's economy would be worth over $350 billion. And at that time, um, compared to white farmers, who lost just 2% of their property. And you're probably asking, how did this happen? 90% of their land? That's a lot. So after the Civil War, the South was in shambles. Most of its economy was based on slavery. After slavery, Black families, through sheer will, began to acquire land. By 1890, about 20% of Black farm families owned their land. And by 1910, that figure had reached 25%. And this is rough estimates. It could have been like a little bit more, historians say. And some of the conditions that Black families and Black farmers faced in their struggle to acquire land, it included white creditors cheating them. White planters were rigging them, white politicians disenfranchising them, which means making it harder for them to vote, not having access to seats on committees, and also additionally, white violence, mobs targeting them with arsons and lynchings. Despite all this, over 425,000 Black families were able to save up enough to purchase almost 20 million acres in the Jim Crow South. 20 million acres is roughly about the size of South Carolina. So that's a large piece of land. 
and just being able to overcome all those obstacles in their way, that's an amazing feat. With this land acquisition, the rural Black middle class became the hope of this generation. With this economic power, according to historians, they recognize rural society by founding fraternal societies, building schools, churches, and businesses to cater to Black clientele. In a study of a rural county in Alabama, um, sociologist Charles Johnson found that farm owners had larger, better quality homes, more equipment and livestock. They were able to keep their kids in school longer. They grew more food for themselves and they had more magazine subscriptions than non-farm owners. In other research studies and writers found similar results in North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, and other areas in the South. From these farmers' hard work, the next generation benefited. So numerous descendants of Black farm owners have used this leg up to build better lives for themselves. Those who stayed on the farm used their independence from the white power structure to advocate for civil rights during the 20th century. Also, these landowners provided refuge and support for civil rights activists who assisted local people as they campaigned for political rights in the 1960s. And this large network of Black landowners, specifically in Mississippi, helped the civil rights movement take root. And as you can see, this is how economic wealth is built, which then turns into generational wealth, sticking together and supporting movements to just uplift ourselves. And we just want to point out the descendants of slaves literally built the boots, built the straps, because if you've heard the term for the acres and a moo, the enslaved individuals, they were promised land after they were free. But Unfortunately, they did not get it, and most of that land continued to remain in the hands of former plantation owners. So literally, enslaved descendants band together to acquire land against extreme opposition. And of course... When, you know, marginalized communities, when Black people start to get a little bit of something, start to have some success, start to flourish, uh, here comes the white backlash. It's it's always a given. It'll come with a swiftness. And yes. this time it's legislative backlash because that's where they really get us. They come in with the nonsense of laws and regulations that harm us in so many ways. So the federal government started acting against these families who had built all this wealth and were really supporting, you know, themselves, their families and entire communities. So Southern legislators passed their agenda, which gave the South's elite immense control over legislation. And these elites were determined to maintain the South's racial order and moved as a block to crush any program that threatened it. So basically what they did, because they were unable to have any legislation that discriminated explicitly on race, policymakers drafted laws that discriminated by the scale or the size of your farm. So these lawmakers attacked programs for small farmers, like those run by the underfunded and short-lived Farm Security Administration. So Southern legislators are quoted as saying these programs are turning black farmers into, quote, lazy, thriftless loafers and for being un-American and communistic. So all of a sudden, you know, the black people who are running farms, taking care of farms are lazy because they're being provided with what barely anything they had to go against all these obstacles to get what they had in the first place but oh no they're lazy so at the same time politicians were taking funds from these smaller black farmers and they're increasing the number of funds going to larger farms which are owned by mostly white men 
because what the larger farms they they need the money all of a sudden interesting but but, but they're not lazy they're they're not lazy they need that money the government initiated massive subsidy programs in this era so federal payments went from 3% of farm income in 1929 to 31% in 1940 and almost all of that money went to wealthy white landowners so again when we bring up time and time again that like white people were literally handed money and then that has continued to help them prosper and flourish well it was taken from black people in other marginalized communities this is what we're talking about so southern legislators weary of federal bureaucrats interfering with their region's racial order ensured that these new agricultural programs and dollars would be managed locally under white control. It's just so frustrating. And Jasmine found a great quote that clearly explains is blatant discrimination, racism, and hypocrisy. U.S. Representative Harold Cooley of North Carolina explained at a hearing in 1943 that subsidies for large farmers were, quote, money earned for the, quote, benefit of the general welfare while Farm Security Administration programs for smaller farms that were for Black people turned the recipients into wards of the government. So you give, you, give, you give money to white people who don't really need it. And it's, that's that trickle-down economics BS of like, oh, it'll, it'll help everybody. Because, yeah, the racist white people are going to help Everybody in it? No, they're just going to help uh-huh. the white people while you give that money to the black people who are truly helping the community, helping those who are facing so much oppression. And oh, now we're just what? Suckling at the teat of the government because now we can't provide for ourselves in any way. This is such hypocrisy. And it's just so frustrating. Like you're telling these black farmers, you know. We're not giving you handouts. You need to work, you know, for the crumbs that you have that you're barely scraping together. But then you're giving larger farms, these larger companies, money, all these subsidies to help them and saying, oh, they're helping the general welfare of society and things like that. And this rhetoric is still used today. Like we continue to cut funding to social welfare programs that go to benefit some of our most vulnerable population. And we stigmatize them for getting handouts and things like that. But no cuts goes to those in the top 20% that are receiving these tax credits. And, you know, it's like their business is helping everyone for like the greater good. Like there needs to be some balance. You know, why is that seen as, you know, people who have large businesses or those at the top wealthy, you know, they earned this, they earned this. And us at the bottom who are working our asses off and, you know, we can't, if we get any type of assistance or leg up, it's like, oh, they're getting handouts, they're getting handouts and this and that. It's just, it's crazy. It's frustrating too, because those people at the top 1%, those people who own these businesses are making millions and millions and millions. And then they hoard that wealth. But then if you look within their company and you look at the rank and file people, you look at the lowest paid person, they're literally employing people with like poverty wages that forces Mm -hmm. them where they have a job, but they still need government assistance because that job that's supposed to, you know, have that trickle down effect of the business that's doing so much for the community. Someone is getting paid pennies. And then y'all think that that's worth it. Or y'all think that that makes sense or that, Oh, they worked hard. So they deserve to then not have to spend money on their millions and millions of dollars when it's just like, It's so unbalanced and people are actually delusional because then people think that they can reach that upper echelon. They can get to that point. It's just like, in what world? In in what world do you really think? And it's also billionaires shouldn't exist because you're a billionaire. Who's your least paid employee? I swear they're probably Mm -hmm. a paycheck away from being houseless. Mm -hmm. I swear they're a paycheck away from like if something happens to their car, if they get sick. 
every everything falls apart. But oh yes, yes, they work so hard and they're helping the entire community. No, they're not. No, they're not. Their employees are suffering. Mm. People are suffering. Mm. And we're gonna try to stay on track. But <laughs> this is <laughs> this crazy because we still got a lot to unpack. So it's a lot. Cause in 1934, the NAACP's magazine wrote that, quote, New Deal policies would spell the end of Black farmers. Almost all the state's Black-owned farms, the whole life savings of from one to three generations would be swept off the map unless the colored people can get some of the government set up as well as the others. If one could help in this, it would do Negroes nearly as much good as the Civil War. Because basically it was a, a situation of they had built all this up and now you're facing government agencies and laws and regulations that are actively working against you. And mm-hmm. and that's like a, a bunch of other stuff too, but like it, land was stolen. I mean, and if we really mm-hmm. want to go back, land was stolen from indigenous people. But it's just yeah. like... So black farmers not only lost out on these massive subsidies, they have been effectively disenfranchised within the modern agricultural system. So the New Deal legislation was the single greatest cause of the decline of black farmers. And by the 1950s, the modern agricultural system was in place in the South and black farmers would see their farmland decline by 4 million acres in the next decade. And if things weren't already bad enough, the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, made it worse. So around the same time, Black farmers became targets in the white backlash of the civil rights movement. So after Brown versus the Board of Education, Supreme Court victory, which ruled racial segregation to be unconstitutional, the Southern white politicians and elites feared that their Black constituents would threaten their power, and they took any measure they could to defend their positions, which included taking advantage of the USDA's power. And I like this quote. It perfectly sums it up. It says, USD programs were sharpened into weapons to punish civil rights activity. So some of the raggedy things that the USDA did included USDA agents refused loans to black farmers. They interfered in elections for county committees that distributed federal funds. So at this time, the South was majority black. And even as African-Americans regained the ability to vote in the late 1960s, The election committee members were overwhelmingly white in many of those jurisdictions. They restricted the crops that Black farmers could grow and sometimes participated in outright theft. And let's take a look at this specific example. William Strider, a USDA agent in Mississippi, would delay paying out operating loans to Black farmers who posted their land as collateral to his friend, Norman Weathersby. Weathersby required Black farmers to put up their entire farm as collateral for loans to purchase farm equipment. So when the USDA farm operating loans failed to come through and the farmers missed their payments to Weathersby, he acquired their farmland. And according to a report, they found that Weathersby acquired over 700 acres of Black-owned farmland this way. They're scheming and conniving and in cahoots with each other. These raggedy, crooked, racist-ass white men who are like over here, oh, I work for the government and I'm going to be slow walking these payments knowing that my friend over here got them to put up their entire farm so they can then purchase farm equipment to help them operate and run their farm. And Mm -hmm. then, oh, look, they didn't get the payment in time. And he's like coming in, snatching everything from them. And it's like 700 acres gone where the government allowed this to happen because you know other people knew what was really going on. They just turned a blind eye. It was like, oh, they donate to black people. Whatever. It doesn't matter. They don't matter. We don't care about them. 
we'll get into some of the studies in the late 20th century found that, you know, both county and state USD authorities who were typically white in the South had historically and routinely discriminated against African-American farmers. And a USDA official might overtly deny a loan equipment telling a Black farmer that all you need is a mule and a plow or telling Black farmers that the disaster relief that they were promised is too much money for a to receive. Like you were saying, Camille, it was... The technique that they used was this paper shuffling, delaying loans for Black farmers until the end of planting season, approving only a fraction of the Black farmers' loan requests, and denying crop disaster payments for Black farmers, which white farmers were routinely granted. Like, you're dependent on this money. You have to go through so many obstacles. And overall... Black farmers lost two-thirds of their remaining acreage between 1950 and 1974. And this quote from the Black Farmers Organization in 1966, it says, The removal of Negroes from land ownership in the South is part of a conscientious policy to destroy the political power of the Black vote. This is a classic example of systemic racism, and it's also a prime example of racial gaslighting because they tried to blame Black farmers for their own circumstances. They pushed this narrative that Black farmers were losing their land because of land consolidation or not understanding technology. But at every turn, Black farmers were facing so much discrimination. And major news articles were, you know, pushing this false narrative. Like in 1965, the New York Times released a front page article announcing that Black farmers were doomed because of economic threats like the mechanical tobacco harvester and also unexplained lack of capital. One expert predicted that farmers would, you know, be gone in 10 years and that they would virtually disappear. But the Times forgot to mention that the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights had released a major report that same year that concluded that there was unmistakable evidence that racial discrimination has served to accelerate the displacement and impoverishment of Negro farmers. So this blatant discrimination is happening, but they try to push this narrative that, no, you know, you guys aren't keeping up with the technology and things like that when at every turn you're being discriminated. This is just racial gaslighting. It is because like you're claiming unexplained lack of capital. They don't have the capital because you're denying them loans. And then when they go to get the loans, you got mother slow walking the the payments Mm -hmm. and then you got their other little shady friend on the other side having them put up their whole farm for collateral and then they're losing their whole farm so it's this whole thing of like you want to claim these things of like oh they're just black people just incompetent they don't know what they're doing or then you'll say why don't you just use a mule and a plow and figure it out when it's just like why aren't the white farmers just using a mule and a plow and figuring it out why do they get the the loans? Why do they get the capital? Why do they have the money to then buy the the technology that apparently we don't understand? No, we understand the technology. Y'all are just denying us access to it. <sighs> this is so frustrating. It's, it really is. It's like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, uh, you just <laughs> not giving us- raggedy. The excess, and then you just you blaming it on us. Like it's your fault. Yeah. It's your fault. <laughs> like no, no. <sighs> and of course, recognizing all of this blatant discrimination and racism, there was resistance from Black farmers because they were, you know, well aware of it. And despite being excluded from the modern credit system, owning few resources, and having little public support. They banded together to keep their lands. So some examples of black farmers resistance included civil rights leader and former sharecropper Fannie Lou Hamer, 
who is known for her run for Congress in 1964, uh, where she challenged Jamie Witten, who we will talk about later. But Jamie Witten served as the chair of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture for over four decades. Let's just quickly say he was a terrible white man. Um, He exercised so much control over the department's budget and gave floods of cash to wealthy white farmers and next to nothing crumbs, if that, to black farmers. So Fannie Lou Hamer, um, she also helped raise funds for black farm organizations and started a cooperative named Freedom Farm in the Mississippi Delta. And her 680-acre operation was one of hundreds of Black-led cooperatives founded in the late 1960s and 70s that helped slow the disposition of Black families. So in 1967, a group of about 22 of these cooperatives, they came together and they became known as the Federation of Southern Cooperatives to pool resources and preserve Black farmland. So they are quoted as saying, we don't have the conservation service experts testing our land. We don't have the bankers lending us money. We don't have the agricultural department giving us help, loans or information, but we're pulling together now. And by 1977, so 10 years later, the FSC included more than 130 cooperatives and approximately 30,000 members. The organization which still serves cooperatives and black farmers today saved millions of dollars worth of black owned farmland. And through this work, the group defied mainstream accounts of black land loss as the inevitable result of mechanation and progress and of black farmers as less sophisticated than white landowners. But despite the FSC and similar groups winning critical victories, it was still, you know, a huge uphill battle against the USDA because here you are, yes, pooling together and trying to fight, but like when you're going up against the government and you're being disenfranchised left and right, you can't even vote in people who will help advocate for you on, you know, a, a government level, be it local, be it state, be it federal, you gonna you gonna struggle. You're gonna struggle. Black farmers and these organizations were banding together to fight for their land, but it just kind of slowed the progression. And we mentioned Jamie Witten earlier. He was the head of the Congressional Agricultural Committee. And Witten's prejudice were reflected in his policies that he supported and how he basically threw ridiculous amounts of money at white wealthy farmers and like we said gave next to nothing to black farmers and under president eisenhower he killed a research agency because of his studies on economic and racial disparities in rural areas when president john f kennedy's administration sought to replace this agency they formed a new agency called the economic research service Witten secured a promise that the new division would not publish any studies on Black farmers, farm workers, and other marginalized groups. And later administrations kept this promise under President Lyndon B. Johnson. Witten, like, unilaterally killed the Great Society's Rural Poverty Office by defunding it and absorbing it into a more conservative part of the department. He basically cut staff from projects that he disliked while he secured political appointments for his friends and close cronies. Witten successfully institutionalized his vision of an aristocratic racial hierarchy at the USDA So he was basically famous for, quote, these hound dog projects. And that is any program he thought might help black southerners. He killed food programs, studies of black sharecroppers, and even a small program to help black workers learn how to drive tractors. Any and everything. And in the 1960s, Witten secured 
23.5 million for wealthy farmers who made up only 0.3% of his district and just 4 million in food stamps for the 59% of his district that live below the poverty line. He got 23.5 million for wealthy farmers, but they that made up 0.3% of his 0.3. They didn't even make a, up a whole 1% even. While mm. you got 59% of your district sitting in poverty. And also, it needs to be made clear to how this whole trickle-down nonsense and then racism has then just brainwashed poor white people because they yes. do exist. They mm. are the main ones who are getting government assistance and y'all will be the main ones affected negatively when you have people like this in power that then say y'all don't get anything because they're trying to attack black people, but there are a bunch of poor white people that are in the same position. And he literally got $4 million in food stamps to them. But $23 million went to farmers who did not need that much money in no way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. And it was wealthy white farm owners who were then able to hoard wealth and, I'm sure, take care of their families in all these amazing ways. But then, like, you got over half. Over mm-hmm. half. You got 59% of people in your district sitting below the poverty line. Living below you are the a demon. Line. You are a yes. demon <laughs> in and power. And people don't recognize, like... Like you pointed out, the poor whites, like you're being harmed in this process, but you rather like cut off your arm if it's if it's gonna prevent, you know, some Negroes from getting help. Like yes. no, no, don't don't help those Negroes, but we're in the same boat. We're you know, have a farm that we used to support our family, but we're not getting any help and any assistance. And you don't mm-hmm. see that this 0.3% of your district is getting millions of dollars where this you're getting a fraction to help support you. And one of the senators in close to Winton, he's quoted as saying, if hunger was not a problem, it wouldn't work. So this is their logic. <laughs> the absolute, like, y'all will just say the most idiotic things. And then just like, and you're just like, your racism has rotted away your brain. You just come up with anything at all to say, which is like, if hunger wasn't a problem at like for humanity, then yeah, we, we, society would look a lot different. We wouldn't really care about a lot of things. Yeah. If we weren't fighting for these crumbs, you know, we're working so hard, so much energy is put into our basic needs. We don't have time to just sit down like the wealthy population, they're hoarding all this money. And these were deliberate and state-sanctioned policies to attack Black farmers. And these funds went to commercial farms, almost all of which were owned by wealthy white men. And I like this quote. The article stated that Black farmers still to this day know the USDA as the last plantation. That's perfect. That's a perfect way to highlight and showcase exactly what that department and federal agency has been since, you know, its creation and it's continued to harm people. So the Commission on Civil Rights confirmed this pervasive discrimination at the department in two major reports. One was done in 1965 and then another in 1982. But of course, because, you know, racism abounds, nothing was done. And these reports received no media coverage because people don't want to acknowledge that, like, y'all are systemically disenfranchising and impoverishing people and stealing land that should have been theirs and keeping them from loans that they should have had. And of course, with no media coverage to what was really happening and what these two reports really told the truth about, white news outlets continue to push the false narrative that, you know, land consolidation and technology were to blame for the decline of black farmers. And even a 1990 congressional study concluded that, quote, little had changed 
at the department since the 1982 report and that the USDA continued to implement policies directly responsible for the loss of land and resources of black farmers. And so in 1997, black farmers sued for widespread discrimination at the department between 1981 and 1996. And although farmers won a settlement in the case and it was called Pickford versus Glickman, the payments did little to relieve the enormous debts many black farmers held or to help them get their land back because like it had been going on for decades. So like you're putting people at such a disadvantage that they like you, you throw in them coins eventually, but like it's it's nothing you throw in them pennies basically. So most black farmers had already lost their land by the 1980s. And that also made them ineligible for relief under this settlement case, which is just like, mm, f- figure that. You Oh, you don't have land anymore? Well, this doesn't apply to you, which is just like, because it wasn't really, you know, a genuine effort in making up for or providing reparations for the bull****. So financial compensation under the lawsuit did not solve structural issues of discrimination or encourage ongoing dialogue about how present-day injustices could be remedied. So another interesting point about the settlement was that the USDA would not include a provision that they would prevent future discrimination. That's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. Like, if you can see our faces, it's just like, (laughs) what the hell? So it's like this, oh, we'll, we'll provide the settlement And with this settlement, we will acknowledge that we were terrible, but we're going to continue to be terrible because there's nothing in here to tell us not to be and prevent this from happening in the future. (laughs) Like, what the hell? But the court in this case concluded the lawsuit represented a significant first step away from historical discrimination. And Black farmers demonstrated their power to bring about change and planted a seed of change. And the judge even stated that it is up to the USDA to ensure this shameful period is never repeated and to bring the USDA into the 21st century. Nothing was put in place to ensure that they would do it again. Like This is lip service. (laughs) This is performative. Like, judge, what are you talking about? What is like, it's all nonsense. There's literally a provision that like this, nothing will prevent future discrimination. And that's why the USDA is still known as the last plantation. Because even the Government Accountability Office released six reports documenting patterns of discrimination at the USDA between 1999 and 2009. Because remember, this court case, the settlement, was back in 97. So now we, we come to 2009, and one independently commissioned study found ongoing discrimination, oh, color me shocked, uh, against oh. minorities within the department in 2011. And then there was rampant deception and discrimination throughout President Barack Obama's administration and continued when Trump was elected. Like, it's raggedy from the top down to the depths of hell. It is just a whole (laughs) crooked racist organization that continues to harm people. Exactly. <laughs> like just the court saying, you know, this lawsuit represented a significant step away from historical discrimination and planted seeds. Those seeds were dug up, <laughs> burned, stomped on, and you know, the same BS has been allowed to grow. Like, yes. what is this? I'm tired of all this. This represents change, but no, it does not. Nothing it is nothing is being done. <laughs> like, <laughs> as we talked about in the beginning, just history is just repeating itself with these, you know, grand representations of this place. Like we said, you win a lawsuit, but then that money gets tied up. So many mm-hmm. things block it. We can't even put in steps in place to prevent this from happening. And, you know, this was done for over decades. So one lawsuit is not going to stop it. Things need to be put in place to prevent it from happening again. And you may be asking yourself, you know, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with health disparities? But 
if you're not outraged by all this, which I know I am outraged doing the research and then getting on the mic and talking about it and everything, and just also overwhelmed by the fact that this is happening again in so many different areas. So what does this have to do with health disparities? As we mentioned in previous episodes, health disparities are a multifactorial problem. Socioeconomic factors play a huge role. Costs and access to treatment are often at the root cause of so many health inequities. And we just want to point out that when the federal government didn't give Black farmers the subsidies that were going to white Southerners, it succeeded in destroying a significant share of Black wealth. Black families lost at least 14 million acres after 1910. The amount of land that Black farmers lost, it is estimated to be about $326 billion, and that's a conservative estimate. And if this amount were distributed across all Black families, their median household wealth would nearly double from 21000 to 37000 And already you can see that the median household for African Americans is already low. Like I said, this is a conservative estimate because it does not account for additional factors like many Black farmers once owned land in what is now considered some of the most fertile areas of the country. So their value would be much higher. And developers have turned much of this land that was previously owned by Black farmers into extremely expensive residential and commercial properties. For example, the Hilton Head in South Carolina. And researchers, they also point out that This money doesn't account for Black families' lost investments in their children's education. It diminished their political rights. Also, they lost their self-determination, autonomy, loss of dreams, hopes, aspiration, and just way of life. There's no way to calculate these factors. Just losing your property just from such extreme obstacles and systemic oppression. And... We just want to point out that this estimate is just a starting point, a way to reckon with the federal policies that undercut Black wealth. So this land loss explains a significant role in the enormous Black and white wealth gap. So the wealth gap between African-Americans and white families is extremely large. So their income ratio is about 10 times larger than Black families. For example, even a white high school dropout will have twice as much the average wealth as a Black college graduate. That's insane. It is. Cause, and then that just clearly shows when, when we talk about privilege yeah. and how, you know, it's not that People don't suffer. It's not that everyone doesn't go through something. It's just that white people aren't experiencing it because of their race. They're actually Mm -hmm. benefiting in some way, depending on what system they're navigating because of their race. While other people are literally actively working against a system and having to work within a system that is meant to harm them, block them from reaching a certain level. Like the fact that you know, a white person who drops out of high school could easily make like twice as much as the average black college graduate is insane and should never happen. But this is America. So. Yeah. And we don't want to reckon with the systemic policies that were enacted that destroy opportunities for African-Americans to build this wealth. And, you know, the key force of this narrative, you know, got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, pull yourself up. But when you, you know, you make your boots, you put your boots together, (laughs) put your straps on, and then they, you know, the boots are taken from you piece by piece. And then they're like, you know, 
why are you looking for a handout? Why are you looking for a handout? And then you continue each day to, you know, you move to a different area, you know, this whole great migration from the South, like mm-hmm. most African-Americans live in urban areas now. And they're like, mm-hmm. why is this? Why is this? Well, we were on farms, but <laughs> we were basically systemically, you know, displaced. There's just so much to this that all just points to then why we have so many health disparities in our community. Exactly. This is the root. This wealth gap and, you know, just socioeconomic are at the root of so many health disparities. But people don't want to talk about this. They don't. (laughs) But we do. (laughs) We do. (laughs) We got time. And I hope you guys are still... Hanging in there with us because we got time. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about these root causes. Look at our history because, like I said, like I've been saying, it's happening again. Mm -hmm. And we just want to give you some updates before we segue into our last segment. Last year, Congress passed debt relief for anyone from a socially disadvantaged group who had certain types of loans with or guaranteed by the USDA's farm service agencies. So before the Agricultural Department dispersed any of that money, a Florida judge, and also I believe um, in Texas, froze the program in response to a lawsuit brought by a white farmer that was backed by a powerful conservative legal fund. Basically, he bought the lawsuit. He said, this is reverse racism. And in case you, if you don't know, now you do, that is not a real thing. It does not exist. Like you don't have systems and organizations and institutions that have existed for decades, if not hundreds of years working against you. And black farmers, they have been pushing. They was like, we just want an agency that works for us and not against us. And at every turn, you know, there is something that comes up like, you know, they create funds like Biden put out this debt relief to help because even the pandemic made it even worse for black farm, the few black farmers that were remaining and black farmers and their advocates criticized the USDA for not getting the money out faster. And Lloyd Wright, a black farmer and former director of civil rights at the Agriculture Department, he is quoted as saying, we're probably not even going to get it, talking about the funds. They could have done it within weeks. They were aware of some angry people were trying to stop it. And he says, I think we'll get the debt relief around the same time we get the 40 acres in a mule. It's the same promise and dog and pony show from the government of like, oh, we'll somewhat half acknowledge that something wasn't right and here's some money. And instead of quickly doing it and righting the wrong, you then allow people to come in and challenge it and go, oh, yes, our hands are tied and we have to figure it out. Y'all, y'all just y'all, y'all want to act like y'all trying to be better and trying to do better, but you don't put anything in place to make sure this stuff doesn't continue to happen. You don't remove the people who are in power that shouldn't have the power, who are allowing it to happen, who pass legislation for it to happen. Mm, That part. Even though Jamie Witten died nearly 30 years ago, his legacy of creating a racial hierarchy through discriminatory agricultural policy is still lives on. The average commercial farmer in Mississippi has a net income of close to $400,000, according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. And in 2018, just... 2,900 farms in Mississippi received over $170 million in subsidies. Meanwhile, the 20% of Mississippians living below the poverty line, and that boils down to about 600,000 people in total, received only $7 million in payments from the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF, and that's basically um, welfare. So 
Mississippi farmers are 86% white, while the welfare recipients are 84% black. And we talked about how Jamie, he put in these policies in place to fund, you know, wealthy farms. And it's just continuing to this day and cut all these money and funding that are going to social programs. This man, and I remember I looked him up too, where it's just like, when did he die? He died in like 1995. He literally like died in office. He like held on to that seat. He held on to that power until he took his last breath. And it's just like, y'all have done nothing to fix the absolute devastating damage he has done because y'all don't really want to fix it. Y'all don't want to acknowledge. Y'all don't want to even have us learn the true history of stuff where y'all abandon books. Talk about how children can't learn about this because it's too early for them. It's like, because you don't want to face the truth. You don't want to acknowledge the truth. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge like where their family got their wealth from. And we're not even Mm. talking about people who are existing in the 1%. We're just talking about you've never really struggled financially because your family has always had money where your family was given money. The government has consistently in this country just handed money, just like hands over fists to white people. While black people, if they go looking for the same opportunities, oh, y'all are lazy. You're just looking for handouts. Why can't you just figure it out on your own? The white people didn't figure it out on their own either. They never figured it out on their right. own. They just figured mm-hmm. out how to build a system and oppress all the other people as much as possible and have us, you know, in this rat race where, like you said before, the goalpost keeps moving. These policies are still affecting us to this day. And like I said, they didn't, they could have put things in place to prevent this from happening, but they don't want to. It's the same, same thing happens over people push back, they win a, a settlement, but then the money gets tied up. It's just crazy. When we try to acknowledge the systemic wrongs that were done, you know, people call like reverse racism like that's not fair that's not fair it's just like like farmers were saying we just want a system that works for us and not against us like that's all that's all we asking for like like the bare minimum oh right like like stop and it's like no mm -mm. no it's this holiday (laughs) you know (laughs) you know Here's a holiday. <laughs> Just these grand performative gestures that are representative of false promises. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. So before we close out, we do, we want to move on to our organizational feature. And we mentioned the Federation of Southern Cooperatives earlier in this episode. This organization still exists and they are continuing their mission to be a catalyst for the development of self-supporting communities through cooperative economic development, land retention, and advocacy. The FSC, the Federation, it was developed by community organizations and leaders um, during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And in their mission, they have three main tenets, which is cooperative development to help small Black farmers and farmers of color compete with the agricultural giants that currently dominate the industry and just to help them survive and thrive. Additionally, land retention, they want to reverse the trend of Black land loss and encourage land-based economic development through outreach and education and direct technical assistance. Like we mentioned earlier in the episode, they were able to save millions of dollars in land for black farmers. So they have been doing the work since the 1960s. 
and also advocacy to fight for equitable policies that meet the needs of their members, which include Black farmers, landowners, and cooperative. And their overreaching vision is to create sustainable rural communities supported by a network of family farmers, landowners, and cooperatives based on local control and ownership. Please support them by visiting their website and reading more about their rich history. And additionally, you can support them through monetary donations because they're out here continuing the work. Because like I said, Black farmers are still not getting access to the loans and the money that they need. And they're still having to fight, but they are banding together to fight back and to continue to operate. So let's uplift them. Let's go follow them and support their cause. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at Distrust Pod. Thank you.